Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. What do Bondage, Hello Kitty, and The Little Mermaid all have in common? Well, they're all features of a room you'd least expect, the bedroom. Most people need a place where they can get busy and spend some quality time with a person they care about. Not too long ago, Japan offered a plethora of love hotels to facilitate, you know, steamy activities. Most of them are gone in the functional sense, but how did they come into prominence? Why did they fall? And why could that possibly be a concern for the people of Japan? Hello and welcome to The Corporate Casket. I'm the Illuminati and today we're going to take an in-depth look at love hotels. These establishments used to be structured specifically around the assumption that sexual activity would occur. But before we get into the core of the issue, sex as a general theme is going to be a prominent factor on this topic. There's really no avoiding that. So if you are a viewer with children or you typically watch or listen to my content at work, I'd encourage you to be mindful of your surroundings with this episode in particular. You're not going to find a ton of puns or double entendres here, at least not on purpose, but today's conversation will be candid. So let's hope this episode doesn't find itself with performance anxiety. As always, when we look at names and places from different countries, I will do my best to pronounce them properly. And if I do mispronounce some of these terms, I apologize in advance. I am clearly not a natural Japanese speaker. Let's play set. The designer, how did this happen? How did the designer think of this? This is terrifying. Awesome. I'm having a bit of an existential crazy moment. It's estimated there are- Now, I was first introduced to the concept of love hotels when I watched the YouTube channel Abroad in Japan. Five years ago, they released a video called Inside a Japanese Love Hotel. And I was equally intrigued and terrified of the subject matter. His channel is absolutely amazing and I totally recommend checking it out. Now, love hotels as a topic is one of the things that have an ingrained sense of shock factor to someone from Western culture. They have a sense of personality that you won't find in the United States. When I'm able to make it over to Japan one day, hopefully, visiting a number of love hotels is absolutely on my to-do list. There are some themed establishments that particularly catch my interest. One of those is a location called the Hotel Blonde Chapel Christmas Narita. Apparently, this hotel is completely Christmas themed all year round. To some Americans, that may not be the wildest thing. Some have their Christmas lights up all year round, so I get it. But it's the fact that it's a realm for intimacy that piques my curiosity. Then there's a hotel called Us Kebagjo, which is hospital themes. From what I understand, uh, Eastern cultures have folks who share the kink of the sexy nurse. Uh, The medical atmosphere is one that the West is familiar with as well, but Westerners typically don't have access to fictitious doctor offices. I'm fascinated by its unorthodox use in Japan. Hotel Windbell is Little Mermaid themed. And I mean, Disney has a history of hidden content in its movies, but I can't imagine getting in the mood with Ariel swimming on the wall watching me. That goes double for the Hello Kitty themed hotel in Osaka. 
This might be hard to believe, but in Thailand, there is a room that is Hitler themed. This particular room has received quite a bit of backlash in the West, but it goes to show that nothing's off limits when it comes to fantasies. One of the most famous Japanese love hotels is the Meguro Emperor, which used to be themed as a historic European setting. It shouldn't be a surprise that people of Eastern culture display Western aspects in their exploration. And I find that really interesting and kind of cool. After I watched the Abroad in Japan video many years ago, I was inspired to do some research into what these places are. People have this perception of them being brothels. And honestly, that's really not what they are. They're actually an outlet for couples to escape a busy household and add some spice into their life. The way these hotels have changed could be a contributing factor to their cultural intimacy problems. So let's try and take a look at what's going on here. Sometime during the Edo period, which is between 1600 to 1868, love hotels got their start. And yeah, they go back that far. They were commonly referred to as daichia or tea drinking shops. No, the people of the establishment weren't necessarily trying to hide what goes on there. They actually did provide tea and snacks to their customers. After all, aftercare is important. Afterwards, said customers would take a bath and spend intimate time together. One of the interesting notes from Sabukaru is tea shops would normally take collateral to ensure payment, usually being shoes or something. Eventually, the tea drinking shop split off into two different categories, the machiai and the sabayas. The machiai had a simplistic arrangement with little decorations and a tatami floor. These were typically the establishments that couples used. Sabayas, on the other hand, were attached to noodle shops, and that caused confusion for patrons since not all noodle shops were sabayas, so people did not know which one was just an eatery and which facilitated sexual activity. These particular establishments were utilized by people who received service from geishas and prostitutes. It's noted in the Sabukuru that public sex was common in the early 1900s, even in front of the Imperial Palace. The parks in the mornings would be home to used condoms or paper scraps with semen on them, leaving the parks in disarray. And I gotta say, I feel bad for the folks who had to pick that up afterwards. Over the following decades, officials discussed how to curb the issue because apparently public sex wasn't approved of in early 20th century Japan, or at least litter with bodily fluids. Thus came the Enshuku, also called the one yen per hour room. Sometime around the 1960s, the Enshuku appeared to be blatant in their attention, cut out the machiai and the sabayas from the market. The timing is something I do find particularly interesting because around the same time period is also when Western cultures realized the first major wave of what's called the sexual revolution. It was also in the same time period that Hugh Hefner founded the now famous or infamous Playboy magazine and business enterprise. It's also considered in the timeframe where Roe v. Wade was first decided. The first birth control pill was manufactured, further enabling sexual freedom. Pornography all over Western civilizations got their start here from Sweden to the UK to the United States. Sex was explicitly marketed through both literature as well as film. There are a number of dissertations dedicated to the sexual revolution. The evolution of intimacy is a widely explored topic in academia. If I were to do the topic justice, like in its entirety, it would take multiple episodes to cover. Like seriously, it's a lot. But what I mention here will not in any way adequately cover the massive amount of information over this time period. To drastically summarize the sexual revolution of the 1950s and 60s, the cause and response is similar to that of the United States 18th through 21st amendments, the prohibition era amendments. Many countries were deciding whether to legalize sexual content on a mainstream platform. The countries that legalized it gave way to a large influx of content. Other countries like the United States and Great Britain attempted to abolish said content. The United States is quite the free country, right? Well, much like the prohibition, people broke the law and found resourceful methods to get the content. 
It's fascinating that the entire world was experiencing a collective upheaval in public sexual perceptions and expectations. According to Business Insider, even Nintendo got in on the scene. And yes, that gaming company with the plumbers, the monkey, the dinosaur, and the boy with the endless bags of weapons and his Gerardo set. While the Western Revolution was in large part a response to censorship, I can't say Japan did the same. I wouldn't call providing areas dedicated to sex a form of censorship. The Sabukaru indicates that much of Japan's concerns about many of these things revolved around more like cleanliness and image issues than any moral inspiration. But what makes love hotels distinguished, at least historically, is the fact that they're outlandish. You wanna go make love in a Hello Kitty room? Go off queen. Not my cup of tea, but hey, there's a place for you. Are you in the mood to get wild and crazy? There are many, many places to do so. Just about any fantasy you could imagine, you can most likely find in a love hotel. The advent of vehicles played a large factor in how accessible love hotels were to average citizens. Instead of it being an arduous task, couples could now drive to the hotel and have their time together. While the nature of the content wasn't influenced by the West, its accessibility certainly was. This brings around questions that I haven't found great answers to. Japan's open sexual activity from 1900 to 1960 precludes the advent of the Western sexual revolution. I wondered if Western exposure led to a more liberal stance on relations, but it doesn't seem that way. Pink films, Japan's version of early pornography, arrived around the same time as Enshuku. Even during the Edo era centuries ago, Japan had artwork produced that depicted sex and quite explicitly. Japan did experience a sexual revolution around the same time, but there isn't enough evidence suggesting that it was more than coincidental. The sexual revolution is a strange, fascinating set of decades. But for all the history and context, I haven't explained what love hotels are for. I mean, by now we've identified their function, but we haven't explored why it would be relevant or what these hotels offer that other places don't. As it turns out, they provide the most basic needs regarding intimacy for most, privacy. 50 varieties of cosplay costumes to rent. I could stand here and look at these all day uh, out of curiosity rather than Having ordered our costumes, we went to collect them from a hole in the wall near the front door. Discretion is one of the key elements of staying in a love hotel, where you'll very rarely see any staff during your stay. According to Reuters graphics, who covered Tokyo's average house size, the average home in the Tokyo prefecture is 66 square meters or 710 square foot, compared with 80 meters, 860 square feet in London. That's half the size of New York City, which we in the United States considered highly urbanized. Many Eastern cultures view family structure and housing differently than Western ones. What is still common in Japan and rarely seen in the United States are three, four, and occasionally even five generation households. The full breadth of this issue is not as prominent considering the birth rate of Japan is drastically low, which we will touch on in a little bit. That being said, space remains an issue. According to the cultural atlas, just over 40% of households have someone 65 years or older living in the house. For couples in Tokyo, living in little more than a studio apartment, having even one extra person in the house makes it extremely difficult for them to find privacy. When we think of hotels or allegedly seedy establishments in the US, we speak of it in the frame of the current battle over public perception. There are still negative connotations attached to sex work. And while at the same time, OnlyFans is a popular cultural phenomenon. And I'm not going to state an opinion on this, in its entirety. It's not my desire to influence your moral compass or your perception of sex or the people who participate in it from a transactional standpoint, just to point out that it is a very hot topic. The intentions of the establishments were not as much in question in Japan early on. As a general rule, love hotels exist slash existed for parents or couples to have time and space away from their loved ones to share intimacy. 
There was a sense of privacy that they couldn't obtain in their own homes. And in that sense, these places gave couples something they sorely needed. Housing size versus capacity is not something I expect much of Western culture to understand, and that includes myself. Perhaps people in Spain and Italy would understand a little bit more where houses are traditionally smaller. The average size of Spain and Italy's homes are actually a little smaller than Japan when you count Japan's countryside. It's interesting that sex transitioned from a public interaction to a private one once love hotels were established. It does not feel like a stretch to say that most of today's society values sex being a private, intimate, and importantly, uninterrupted experience. Another vital feature of love hotels is anonymity. While morally, Japan as a society has been more casual about sex over a larger period compared to Western cultures, reputation is a critical piece of how the country functions. Many depictions of that anonymity in essence is to ensure that neither the people who worked at the hotel nor its patrons would experience embarrassment. The Atlas Obscura goes into detail about a typical love hotel transaction and they say, love hotels promise absolute discretion and aim to eliminate face-to-face contact with receptionists. Traditionally, guests are locked in their rooms for the duration of their stay and interact with staff only by a screen or telephone. Despite an open history regarding sex, modern day Japan is not as open with their sexual activities. I imagine having somewhere where they could facilitate exploration and freedom from a physical standpoint would help in most aspects. It would give them a moment of privacy or a little time to go crazy before returning to a strict endeavor to constantly preserve one's reputation or to avoid shame. And this brings me to a point I personally don't understand. Be warned that the following will have brief mentions of minors and sexual encounters. So if this is something that may upset you, feel free to skip the next couple minutes. And bear with me here because I'm not passing judgment on their culture, but expressing a conclusion from a different number of factors. I cannot wrap my head around where Japan stands as far as sex in the wider spectrum. According to the BBC, in June, 2014, Japan's parliament voted to ban the possession of real images of child sexual abuse. However, they didn't extend this decision to animated depictions. That's also considering with parental permission, the age of consent in Japan is 13, meaning they can engage in those activities or get married by that age. And please note that arranged marriages are extremely rare, but still legal. This BBC article also depicts the idea that these illicit mangas are sold casually as an action or adventure genre or mystery or a thriller. Japan does have multiple laws in place regarding actions without consent, minors, public decency, and more. So they are by no means lawless heathens or anything like that. This is more of coming from the perspective of a Western culture that isn't knowledgeable in Eastern culture. From what I've researched, the best statement I could make is it's not straightforward. You cannot peg Japan down as repressed from an intimate standpoint, nor can you label them as overt. Love hotels compartmentalize this seemingly dualistic existence, allowing consenting couples to go to the rooms and forget about customs in the outside world. So long as participants weren't doing anything to publicly shame themselves or their family or jobs, play ball. Every source that I read states that these places initially were a necessity and beneficial for Japan. Unfortunately, as anything else can be, they were misused. According to the Sabukuru, business for love hotels tanked in the mid 1980s. Between the normal couples that went to get much needed time alone, a rise in criminal activity occurred in the hotels. Quote, i.e. prostitutes, gangsters, or anyone looking to use these hourly hotels as a way to lure naive patrons to extort them, hide their crimes anonymously, or worse yet, commit murder. In 1981, a serial killer murdered three women at love hotels in the red light district in the Kabuki-cho in Tokyo, one of them being a high school student that has never been identified. These women were killed between the months of March and June. The killer is simply known as Kabuki-cho businessman because he was never found. 1980s pop star Akina Nakamori allegedly dedicated her song Shouju A to the 17-year-old. 
Shoju A was the Japanese equivalent of Jane Doe. There are a number of implications regarding crime and love hotels, some of it attributed to the Yakuza. And I'm not going to get into every aspect because there are so many accusations that I wasn't able to fully substantiate one way or another. Every source that talks about the history of love hotels talks about crime being prominent prior to legal action being taken in the mid 1980s, but I was unable to find specific instances aside from the Kabuki Cho murders. I'm currently working under the assumption that those reports are still accurate because of the documented legal actions taken by Japan. There are current day issues that allege teenage sex work is prominent in love hotels. It's not clear if this is trafficking or voluntary. There is no proof of love hotels even being involved. In 2002, the book Law in Everyday Japan, Sex, Sumo, Suicide, and Statuses researched over 1200 instances of sex work. Of all those cases, only two primarily operated under love hotels. The author did, however, assert that love hotels could likely be an alternate destination if officials crack down on sex work. It doesn't seem like the facility should bear the blame of an activity that isn't occurring in their grounds statistically. There are crimes that occur in love hotels, obviously, but crime can literally happen anywhere. A sick man reportedly had a 13-year-old girl sign a slave contract before becoming intimate with her in a love hotel. That man, rightfully so, was arrested and charged with the appropriate crimes. Mark West of the University of Michigan also covers the 1985 entertainment law that drastically changed Japan's love hotels. The law defined love hotels as an establishment made for staying all night or rest, meaning sex. In short, the government directly dictated the difference between a regular hotel and this particular hotel. So if an establishment had no restaurants, no lobbies, by which they mean a place where a customer meets an employee face-to-face, sign in and receive a room key, and objects of sexual connotations, moving beds, pleasure devices, or sexy vending machines, it was labeled as a love hotel. Once love hotels were legally identifiable, officials were able to regulate them. Details as simple as zoning laws made a critical impact on where these hotels could operate. This resulted in many future hotels being clustered together, bathing their neighborhood in neon lights. Limiting the space where love hotels could operate was a power move made by the government that intended to indirectly eliminate the industry. By name, you could say the love hotel industry died, but not literally. Actually, the opposite happened. It's true that love hotels, as identified by law, declined drastically between 1985 and 2000. These hotels were closed or shut down and many remain simply as quirky historical remnants. And I'm honestly grateful for that. With the restrictions in place, future love hotels opted to take on an image of standard hotels. These particular establishments were called extra legal love hotels, even more legal than before. They fit all the qualifications of standard hotels, but were still identified by an intent of romantic rendezvous. The laws they used to stamp out hotels actually made them more viable. I'm still fascinated by the wild features of some of the love hotels, but it was a big relief for these establishments. They no longer had to pay for extravagant features or maintain their upkeep. It gave them the opportunity to assess their customers and adjust. Having features like available meals, hot tubs, video game consoles, karaoke equipment, and basic furniture that didn't spin was widely appealing. Part of what allowed love hotels to continue flourishing was the fact that parliament gave them such a specific set of parameters. It allowed owners to creatively change the name of their business. New hotels came up like romance, fashion, leisure, amusement, couples, boutique, pretty much anything you can imagine. These places are alive and well and offered to people for their intended purpose. Love hotels also changed their target customer. Prior to the 1985 law, men drove the revenue. Be it single or married, they initiated entry into these hotels. Advertisements used to focus on the sexual aspect. Instead, the main point was to offer readers a sort of guide to love hotels, explaining the amenities available. 
This approach helped to make hotels more accessible to women. And women, in fact, became the focal point of their new business practices. Married couples made the decision together and the wife's input was further prioritized. And it wasn't just for married women. Single women began going to the hotels independently simply for the sake of relaxing in a non-sexual manner. Many of these places offer spa packages and gourmet meals. Their focus is more on encouraging their women customers to return and potentially bring a male companion. Unfortunately, there is one ax I have to grind with love hotels in general. According to Sora News 24, many of these places have been violating a 2018 law regarding members of the LGBTQ community. The Ministry of Health ruled that hotels refusing anyone based on sexual or gender orientation was in violation of an anti-discrimination law. Despite Japan recognizing same-sex couples as legally binding, love hotels are known to turn away gay couples. Just gay men though, not lesbians. Their reason is that gay men supposedly make a bigger mess and quote, don't use the facilities properly. And this is where I have to interject and put in some bold opinions here, but um, I know that there are people of all genders, races, ages, creeds, and sexual orientations that are gross and messy. This isn't limited to being a gay thing, it's a people thing. I understand if someone makes an enormous mess and gets blacklisted because of their own actions. I am perfectly down with that. I think that's a great rule. But seriously, Japan recently outlawed a ban on same-sex marriage, and I would have expected the hotel industry to not be discriminatory, especially the love hotel industry. This obviously isn't every single love hotel, but of course it's prominent enough that it made headlines. I do hope that this will soon change. Now there are areas where hotels we'd consider outlandish will still thrive. It remains a popular tourist attraction for Western visitors. The enduring success of the love hotels highlights a separate issue Japan faces though. Japanese people are just not having sex anymore. And before we continue on to talk about the deprivation and corporate cultures and other factors, let's go ahead and take a quick moment to thank today's sponsors. So at what the end of what can feel like an endless workday, the last thing I wanna do is cook dinner. But when your fridge is empty, that urge to order in and skip all the cooking happens all too often. But thanks to Daily Harvest, I don't have that takeout temptation anymore. Daily Harvest keeps my freezer fully stocked with options that are delivered right to my door and they're delicious, nourishing, and ready in minutes. I think I've mentioned that Daily Harvest at this point has become such a like regular daily routine in my life that I almost don't think about it in terms of like, oh, hey, this is Daily Harvest also a sponsor. I'm like, this is Daily Harvest. That's literally just part of my life like every morning now. And for me, the big takeaway with Daily Harvest, like the number one product that they offer that I am in love with are their smoothies. Now, they also have amazing other products and they keep coming out with more stuff too. They have delicious harvest bowls, soups, flatbreads, snacks, lattes, everything. And it's all built on organic fruits and vegetables. I am particularly in love with the smoothies. It's at a point where I don't really do a breakfast so much as I do like a late breakfast, early lunch smoothie instead. And that's kind of how I get my day going. And I really love it. And they offer enough variety and fresh fruits to really keep me happy. And speaking of new products on the scene, they have their delicious harvest bakes. It's for those moments when you're looking for homemade feels without any of the work. They're simply ready to bake veggie packed dishes sizzling with gourmet level flavors that are big enough to share. But the reality is you're not gonna wanna share. So avoid the takeout temptation or get your morning started just like I do and get Daily Harvest. Make sure you go to dailyharvest.com casket and get up to $40 off your first box. That's dailyharvest.com casket for up to $40 off your first box dailyharvest.com slash casket. Now those big wireless providers forget that families come in all shapes and sizes. And that's why Mint Mobile decided to shake up the wireless industry with their brand new modern family plan. 
each line starts at just 15 bucks a month and you only need two lines to get started. So it doesn't matter how big or small your family is, you deserve to save on your wireless service. And you guys know that I've been using Mint Mobile now for almost two years at this point, and I've been extremely happy with my service with them. And the only time I ever actually had a problem with Mint Mobile was because of human error and me being a dumb user. And when I called them, they have some of the nicest people working in customer service and they were able to get me ship shape and ready to go in literally less than 10 minutes based off of a mistake that I made and they were still able to fix it. So thanks Mint Mobile for dealing with me. I'm so sorry, I'm clumsy. And Mint Mobile gives you the best rate, whether you're buying for one or for a family. All of their plans come with unlimited talk and text and high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And of course, you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone number along with all your contacts, or you can get new ones, get a new phone, get a new number, maybe get some different contacts. It's all up to you. So to get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, make sure you go to mintmobile.com casket. That's mintmobile.com slash casket. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash casket. We are only going to cover Japan's work life and sex culture briefly, but it is relevant to the past depiction of love hotels and the few that are under operation, and of course, the modern rendition. If we look back at our coverage of Korea's Sampung department store collapse, I mentioned the work habits that plague Eastern cultures. And Japan goes right along with that. Kuroshi is a Japanese term created in 1970, meaning death from overwork or overstress. The country actually has a track record of instituting labor laws that coincide more with the Western hemisphere. The government enacted the work style reform law in 2018. This is one of the first laws to penalize companies for excessive overtime. The Labor Standards Act of 1947 allocated annual paid leave based on hierarchy. Vacation time, leave time, maternity leave, these are all things that Japan has instituted. But this isn't a matter of moral direction, nor does it have anything to do with business practices. The blunt truth here is there is no earthly productivity after death. Their government at the bare minimum realizes this and it's wonderful to see them act on it. In the past, that didn't matter. The power of shame and public image is still so powerful in Asian cultures. It drives the everyday actions of the people who work there. Workers still decline using legal vacation time so they aren't seen as the only one to take a vacation, AKA the lazy one. Social status in Japan is powerful in a way that's unique to them. I would go as far to say as a whole, reputation is even more valuable than money. But the younger workers are beginning to fight back against that norm. It is depicted as a generational clash. More of the millennial generation wants vacations, wants more time to themselves. Progress is being made in the workplace culture, but that region has a long way to go to undo centuries of long trends. And time is of the essence here, and I don't say that to be cliche. Time is literally one of the most fearsome enemies for couples. For a region that often has people work from 7 a.m. to 10 p.m., when does an individual have time to date? When would a husband have the time or energy to take care of a wife, considering that many in Japan still aspire for historically normative households? When would a young woman have time to meet someone to go on a date? Sex and procreation are near the forefront of current issues in Japan, and work life is downplayed compared to other factors that I'll get to later. Despite all this, love hotels have turned a profit. Love hotels on average make millions of dollars annually, according to multiple sources. But this is not because the country has reinvigorated its enthusiasm for sex. They've leaned heavily into the international market and the more functional version of what they once were. As many successful industries do, they adapted, though legally it was a forced adaptation. 
Despite the economic success, many are forecasting economic difficulties and labeling the lack of sex as the reason. In 2016, the industry spoke out about the ensuing difficulties. The love hotel business is going through a difficult time, said Shingemi Sudo, the director of Tokyo Hotel and Ryokan Association. This is probably because more young people live away from their family home these days, so there's no need for them to go to a love hotel. But it's not like they're being intimate in their own homes either because they're too busy working. The work-life issues coincide with another fact. Japan has a large demographic that displays little to no desire for sex. The Diplomat explores the status of sex in Japan in response to BBC's documentary, No Sex Please, We're Japanese. If you're interested, I will leave a link to that film in my sources. And counting. And when you come to Tokyo, it feels like most of them live here. When I thought of Japan before I got here, this is the image I had in mind. But Japan is so different. Now, the BBC documentary gives a bit of a false narrative, but their points are still overall valid. It is true that 40% of unmarried persons in Japan aged between 18 to 34 were reportedly celibate, according to Japan's 2010 and 2015 National Fertility Survey. The amount of single Japanese people has been cited multiple times as a concern. The South China Morning Post cites a professor from Chuo University that estimates that 25% of people will be single and childless for life. It coincides with Japan's work culture, the dating market, and the concept of shame. The issue of sexual satisfaction has also risen to prominence, according to a 2005 Durex study. If you don't remember, Durex is one of the top figures in condom manufacturing. This survey was done nearly 20 years ago, but I believe the core issues are still relevant since Japan is allegedly under a population crisis. The average Japanese has sexual intercourse 45 times a year, the lowest number among all the 41 countries surveyed. Japan places second from the bottom after China in terms of sexual satisfaction with the percentage of people who are happy with their sex life at 24%. The average for 41 countries is 44%. And you know, Japan offers a place that facilitates more adventurous physical activities. And this is just my opinion, but I wouldn't be surprised if the sterilization of love hotels has something to do with current intimacy levels. We talk about the love hotel's reputation for allowing an escape for hardworking couples and individuals. One of the accusations that I didn't get into in this episode is the alleged impact of pornography and video games on Japan's sex life. A lot of sources claim that video games and porn addictions are actually the cause of this problem, but we're not really gonna touch on those topics. They are still being widely contested and there's a litany of resources from the past and more will be available in the future. But games and pornography are both forms of escapism. Japan had escapism readily available for consenting adults predating both the media in their current forms. It seems like love hotels and Japan will revert to this vicious cycle. Love hotels will become resembling standard hotels, limiting the amount of exploration couples can achieve. Japan's current economy could continue perpetuating the constant work culture, giving no time for its people to be intimate. No intimacy means no need for love hotels and so on and so forth. Family sizes also point to an issue with sex in Japan. Statistically, Japanese families have been averaging 1.4 children for the past 20 years. This is listed as a population crisis for Japan, and soon they will have more people retiring or needing healthcare than those entering the world. It's a terrifying time for them with real upcoming implications. I would assert that the size of families correlates with sexual activity, and many times more sex does equate to more kids. Japan's culture is set in a way where everything is intertwined. Work, family, sex, and entertainment can't really be isolated into just little boxes. Every aspect of their life has a significant impact on all other factors. There aren't any statistics to prove this, but I think that the way love hotels were forced to change or go out of business severely hampered the intimate life of Japan. 
not just in the sense of availability, but being overt in sexuality. Despite trying to make positive changes, they've stopped being the carnal retreat couples desperately need. Hopefully love hotels rise again as a safe place for Japanese couples to be intimate. And if they don't, hopefully these couples will begin to find the personal time they need for them and for their community. But hey, with all of that being said, that's where we're gonna end today's episode of The Corporate Casket. I hope you learned something new today. And if you did, make sure you're liking, following, and subscribing to stay up to date on all the latest episodes. I really appreciate you spending a little bit of your time here with me today, and I look forward to seeing you in the next one. Bye.